0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So why don't we do that? I invite you to join me in Philippians chapter 3. We'll pick up as best we can where we left off last week. And as a reminder, Paul is, is writing this letter to a church that he planted in Philippi some, some 10 years prior, and he's writing this in isolation from, from prison. And so he's away from, from these people that he loves. He longs to be with them. Uh, the, the tone of the letter is, is so warm and affectionate, and, and the words are just seeping with the kind of love and longing that he has for these people. And as we learned last week, he's preparing to send Timothy and and send Epaphroditus to the church in Philippi to to equip them and to encourage them. And he's hopeful that he will get to do the same. And so it's through this this warm tone, this affection, that Paul is writing some really important things to the Philippians. And they're important things that are are really wonderful to be reminded of, but, but a lot of it is reminders that are hard to hear. And Paul doesn't shy away from reminding the Philippians of the hard things. He's responding to what was happening in other churches he had planted. There were external forces at work that were subverting the work of the gospel, that were subverting the work that Paul and others were trying to do to advance the kingdom. Namely, it was a response to to people called the Judaizers, who were teaching a, a different gospel, teaching these these Christians, that there was actually a different way to salvation and a better way to salvation, that one had to accept and follow this way in order to be saved. And so Paul wanted to address that. He had already observed this subversion in some other churches to the detriment of their their church, and he wanted to warn the church in Philippi and head it off at the pass. But he also wanted to address some things that were going on within the church in Philippi that was causing division, that was causing disunity. And because he loves them so deeply, he can't let that continue. And so this letter is, is a reminder and a warning He reminds the church to to hold fast to the teachings that they have learned and that they have embraced about Jesus, and, and that they can rejoice in all things, as we've learned in the last several weeks. They can rejoice in each other, being unified in Christ, being of one mind. They can rejoice in criticism. They can rejoice in death. They can rejoice in humility, in obedience, in sending and being sent, and this week in chapter 3, we, we take what seems like an, an abrupt turn as Paul expresses to the church his own faith experience and his passionate desire to know Christ, to gain Christ, to be found in Christ above everything else. It's a powerful passage on what it means to share in Christ's sufferings. So let's turn now to the book and read Philippians chapter 3. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers. And the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Father, it's my prayer this morning that, that we would see these words as sufficient, and that through a very broken messenger, your purposes would be fulfilled this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In the broadest sense, the definition of suffering is the absence of pleasure. It's the absence of comfort. In many ways, we try to pad our lives with things that give us comfort and pleasure in order to mitigate the suffering. In other ways, we are actually called to go out into the world to address the suffering of others. No matter how you look at it, suffering is an unavoidable truth of being a human being. If there's nothing to gain from it, why do we want to do it? No one wants to suffer. Even this past week had its abundant share of suffering. As if COVID and the, and the consequences of the pandemic wasn't enough, uh, we watched as the world and, and our nation and even our city responded to the heartbreaking death of George Floyd, not to mention the myriad other things that are occurring in your life and in mine that just in the last week reminded us of the reality of suffering. Let me ask you something. What do you have? What's something you own or or something that you have attained that if you lost it, if it was taken away from you, you're not sure how you could go on? This is the question that Paul is encouraging us to examine in this text. The stinging reality of Christian suffering is our reminder that we have been united with Christ. More than that, it is the very means God uses to transform us into the image of His Son. Now this is quite the thesis. So much so that I think, if an unbelieving person heard that, they might think that that those of us who, who might believe that, are crazy to think that suffering would be a tool that God uses to transform us into the likeness of Christ. And if that describes you this morning, if, if you're here this morning and, and that, that sounds crazy to you, or you're not quite sure what you think about this thesis, I'm really glad that you're here. And I invite you to lean into the message this morning because I really believe that there's something here for all of us. And my prayer is that all of us would find it to be really good news. While the brokenness of our world and the sinfulness in our own hearts is an ever-present reality, Paul reminds us that we can rejoice. We can rejoice. We've heard that word over and over in this letter to the Philippians, and he begins again at the beginning of this chapter. Finally, My brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He said it again and again and again. It's it's no trouble for Paul to remind the Philippians, and it's safe for them. And if you've been hanging out with us for any number of of weeks, you'll you'll know that this is a theme of Connection Church, and in fact, a theme of any gospel-centered church. Each week is marked by good news. That is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each week we gather together, is a reminder of what it means to be redeemed by Christ. And because of that, we can rejoice. We can have joy even in the midst of suffering. And so the two themes that I I think I want to linger on this morning are these. The first is that the world and our proclivity toward sin will lure us into believing false gospels will lure us into self-righteousness, despair, and hopelessness. I use the word lure intentionally because they seem attractive. We have a propensity to go toward those things that draw us away from Christ. And number two, your resume is meaningless compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. The surpassing riches of knowing Christ, of gaining Christ, becoming like Christ, is worth more than anything else. Anything else. Everything else. And so Paul begins with a warning. You see, the Judaizers. That is, the people who were, who were preaching that salvation could only be attained by following the Jewish law were working really hard to subvert the work of Paul and others who were advancing the gospel. They had basically ravaged the church in Galatia. And if you read Paul's letter to the Galatians, you can see how concerned and worried he is for them. He even asks them, who has bewitched you from believing what we have taught you into something else? These people were were smooth talkers. They were persuasive. And Paul knew that they would try to influence the church in Philippi as well. Paul had some strong feelings about them. It's amazing to me that this man who was so intelligent, a man who who could craft words so perfectly, describe very complex things in such simple ways, would turn to such base language in this section of Philippians. He does it intentionally. He calls the Judaizers dogs. Now, we have a different image of dogs. We, we view dogs as cute little cuddly creatures that we invite to live in our homes. That is not the image that Paul is bringing up here. Unlike pets of today... In this time, this was a derogatory term. Dogs are unwelcome creatures. They're unclean. And Paul's not just being mean here. He's intentionally using these provocative words to describe how the Judaizers call the Gentiles. These are the words the Judaizers use as derogatory terms to the Gentiles. And it illustrates the great reversal brought about by Christ. That is, now it is the Judaizers who must be regarded as Gentiles. He calls them evildoers. Now the Judaizers regarded their works as good, as justification for righteousness and salvation. Paul refutes that claim and 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 using the same words calls them doers of evil. That in fact what they're doing is evil. And then he saves the most stinging one, For the end, he calls them mutilators of the flesh. This would have been very offensive to the Judaizers. Paul means this to be provocative. He means to take the very symbol of righteousness used by the Judaizers and turn it completely upside down. In fact, he compares the ritual of circumcision as as practiced by the Judaizers as a pagan custom having no significance whatsoever to righteousness or salvation, but actually served to enslave people back to their pre-Christian rituals. Paul was not in prison because he was nice. Paul did not dance around the truth. Paul said provocative things. And remember, it's all under the umbrella of how much love and care and compassion and concern he has for his brothers and sisters. He wanted to tell them the truth about what was out there. to What, what to watch out for because the threat was imminent. Look, there are, there are things that are actively working against us as we pursue Jesus. Paul's words are not passive. They are urgent. You will get distracted, so beware. He's encouraging the, the people in Philippi and encouraging us that these are not the people to imitate. He lays out the truth in the next section and gives the antithesis of what the Judaizers are preaching. He, he talks about the true circumcision and what is really true. That circumcision is not an external ritual, it is the circumcision of the heart, An internal transformation brought about by the Holy Spirit. And it is through that Spirit that we are able to worship. That we are led to worship. Worship that's even pleasing to God. We don't need to offer anything in addition to what Christ has already given on our behalf. Nothing more is required. We can glory in Christ because He has made a way for us to have confidence in Him and what He has done. The opposite attitude is to put confidence in the flesh. Confidence in in pedigree or achievement or, or attainment or success or anything external that we could glory or boast in. And speaking of boasting, Paul has every reason to boast. Did you catch it? His resume is solid. What's something on your resume that you're particularly proud of? What's the first thing on that list that gives you a sense of of accomplishment, a sense of of meaning or a, a sense of purpose? I think the converse question is true too. What's something that you feel is missing from your resume? Do you have imposter syndrome? Do you feel like if you were able to just attain that one more thing you could, you could put on your resume, then you would be qualified, you'd be worthy. The next section is for you. We are invited with Paul to examine the things onto which we place our confidence. It's the sand on which we build our identity and purpose. Now, I want to I warn you, this could hurt and if you don't want to be hurt by this, I, you might want to turn off your device right now. But I promise you, if you stay, if you stay, God will give you the opportunity to experience His grace and His freedom in a way that will surprise you. It will fill to the brim the emptiness left by all of these shadows we try so hard to hold on to. There is freedom on the other side of your resume. And Paul argues that what Jesus has to offer is worth the loss of all things. And what Paul does next is a hallmark of a disciple-making disciple. He leads by confession. So let's see who Paul really was. There's four things that he tells us about in chapter 3 that he inherited by birth. And then there's three things that he attained in his life. So let's look at those four things he inherited. First, he says, he's circumcised on the eighth day. Now, as we learned already, that's a really, really important ritual. It's a highly regarded custom among the Jewish people. So much so that if one came to that that faith later in life, their circumcision was not as prestigious as being circumcised on the eighth day. He's of the people of Israel. He's a pure blood. He's not a second-class convert. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, this is significant in terms of ancestry and heritage. The tribe of Benjamin produced Israel's first king. His name happened to be Saul. Now, if you want something really good to read this week, I commend that chapter to you. It's in 1 Samuel. You can see how a guy named Saul, who left his father's house in search of some missing donkeys, came back king of Israel. It's an amazing story. And I don't know, do you think it's coincidence in the naming? Paul's pre-conversion name was Saul. I don't know if that's coincidence, but I do know there was pride in that lineage. And he says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, this illustrated his educational and cultural status. Then Paul turns to his achievements. He says, as for the law, a Pharisee, end of verse 5. Now, we typically understand Pharisees to be the antagonists toward the Christian church. They're, uh, and that's true, of course. But the, the other thing that we tend to forget is that they were highly respected people. They were were very persuasive, very smooth-talking, very highly regarded in society. They were respected. They were were looked on with, with esteem. Very impressive. He goes on to say, as for zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, this is when it gets a little scary to look at the reality of who. Paul used to be he formerly would have boasted about his behavior toward the Christian church now this is a story found in Acts chapter 8 and this is how Luke describes Paul the end of chapter 8 he recounts the stoning of the apostle Stephen Stephen died as a result of this and Saul was there and he oversaw the stoning and approved of it In chapter 3 it says this, Saul was ravaging the church. He was entering house after house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. His zeal was real, but misplaced. His efforts were successful, but, but totally misguided and destructive. There was a lot of zeal on display this week. There was zeal in obtaining justice. Zeal in exercising the right to peaceably assemble, to protest. We are protestants, after all. There was zeal in man- maintaining order and, and there, was even, there was even zeal in, in looting and, and causing destruction. Now, I don't know how the events of this last week affected you, probably in in, in many different ways, but it seems that we have many, many things to be zealous about right now, but zeal without the Holy Spirit almost always causes destruction. Zeal on its own, born apart from Jesus, apart from the sufficiency of the Bible, will return to us empty. Does the Holy Spirit produce zeal for justice? Yes. Does the Holy Spirit produce zeal for kindness? Yes. Does does the Holy Spirit produce zeal for walking humbly with God? Yes. Does the Holy Spirit produce zeal for vengeance? No, the enemy does. Look at the destruction wrought from Paul's zeal before the Lord rescued him out of that. The Lord of heaven and earth came down from heaven and encountered Saul on the road to Damascus where he was planning to further his zeal in persecuting the church. And the Lord flipped his life upside down. He flipped it upside down. And now, Paul thinks about the world and his purpose in it in a totally different way. He explains this transformation in this section in very personal terms to make it really clear. In fact, he's, he's using accounting terms. He's, he's quantifying his experience so that, so that it might be crystal clear to us what he's talking about. That which he considered gain, he has transferred to the loss column. He considers his previous confidence in the flesh as spiritual liabilities. In fact, he goes on to say that he considers all things. Loss in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Don't don't miss what that means here. Paul is renouncing his ethnic, his national, political, pietistic, and even religious superiority. Why is he doing this? To know Christ. Now, to be clear, Paul does not regard his Jewish heritage or or elements of his resume as bad in and of themselves, but rather his confidence in those things as means of of rightness with God and a a guarantee of salvation. So achievement in and of itself isn't a bad thing. Success and, and achievement can be God's way of affirming his call on your life, the work that he has for your hands but we can easily turn that into something God never meant it to be. I've experienced that. I'm sure you have too. Maybe those attainments of things boost your ego. Maybe they they prove to yourself your worthiness or or your acceptance. Maybe it's the, the reliance on those things. You know, I've, I've worked in the performing arts for about 20 years and I've had to deal with that issue myself. I've counseled many students on dealing with this very issue in that context. You know, the, the applause can be intoxicating. The applause, the, the attention a performer gets can be The means of finding identity and purpose and worth. And then the critique comes. And it can crush you. The critiques can be crushing. So Paul says he has suffered the loss of all things and counts them as rubbish. It's an important word here. He has no regrets for casting them aside. The ESV, the translation that I read from, translates this word from the Greek as rubbish. But that's a, that's a polite way of translating this word. The Greek word is, is actually a word skubalon. And I can't, I can't actually say the word that it most closely resembles right now. I will say some synonyms of that word, and you can fill in the blanks, but it more closely resembles filth, or manure, or or dung. Paul is saying, in the basest way he can, that there are two categories. There is Jesus, and there is filth. C.S. Lewis said this, When we stand before God on the final day, all external advantages and disadvantages will dissolve. And our true selves, the part of us that chooses good or ill, obedience or disobedience, will remain. Then we will see ourselves as we really are. And this moment of revelation will contain surprises. Paul does not want there to be surprises. And he's given us an example of how to think about this. Now, it's the work that we have to do. How do we respond to this? Practically speaking, how do we respond to this idea of suffering the loss of all things? Am I supposed to Throw away all of my stuff? I mean, after all, I got in my, my car this morning and I drove over here and I, I put on clothes this morning and, and I, I'm, I'm using this, this iPad to deliver this sermon. Am I supposed to cast all of this aside? Am I supposed to throw away my diplomas and my trophies? You know, maybe... Maybe for some of you hearing this this morning, maybe that's the message. Maybe you are to listen to the call on on your life from from God and sell everything and become a missionary somewhere in the world. Maybe that is what the message is this morning. But for the rest of us, how are we supposed to deal with this? Now these points are especially for those of you who already believe in Jesus and and this will serve as a a new way to, to think about this. And again, you might be here this morning and you don't know how you feel about Jesus and you're not sure if you believe in this, in this message, in this news, in this, in this good news of what Jesus has done. And so I invite you to be skeptical and I invite you to remain at the table. Maybe for you, like me and for the rest of us, Paul's argument could radically change the way you live your life. If Paul's argument is true, if Paul's appeal that all things are garbage compared to the value of knowing Christ, maybe there's something here. So what does it look like to move everything to the lost column? I'm so indebted to Spurgeon, who's a theologian, to John Piper, who's a preacher and teacher for for unpacking this for me. I learned so much from this, and and I want to share these points with you. I've got four of them. And I invite you to to really think about these. The first one is this. If any decision forces you to choose between Christ and something else, choose Christ. The Judaizers said you you could not have salvation without the observance of the law. Christ said the opposite. Choose Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Here's the second one. I will deal with the things of this world in such a way that they draw me nearer to Christ, so that I may gain more of Christ and enjoy more of Him. There are so many practical applications of this one, I'm just going to pick one. How would you you characterize your interactions on the internet? How are you doing with with the content that you are consuming? How are you doing with the content that you are sharing? Is it drawing you closer to Christ? Is it causing you to enjoy more of Him? Or is it drawing you away from Him as you, as you fight envy or judgment or, or fear or comparison with each passing post? If it's drawing you away, put it in the loss column. Here's the third one. I will always deal with the things of this world in such a way that will indicate that they are not my treasure, but rather show that Christ is my treasure. What do you have your grip so tightly on that maybe you aren't even aware that you are slave to it? This can be so many things. Sometimes they're, they're, they're hiding, and it's so simple and seemingly simple. Seemingly so silly. It could be your shoes. It could be your car. It could be your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse. Your children. I love my children. But the moment that I forget that I do not own my children. That they were given to me as a gift is the moment I have taken my eyes off of Christ. As Tim Keller reminds us, as parents we are meant to be ambassadors of Christ in our children's lives. Pointing them to the finished work of Jesus. My treasure is not in my children. My treasure is in Christ. And my job is to be an ambassador of that treasure to my children. You know, I'm grateful for my job. But the moment I begin to see my job as my identity and my purpose is the moment that I forget that God has given me the work of my hands for his purpose and for his glory. I've really struggled with this one. How about you? God has given us the gift of companionship. But the moment you begin to see your your boyfriend or girlfriend As the answer to your loneliness and and the source of your joy and fulfillment is the moment you cease to see the finished work of Jesus as the source and fulfillment of joy. And here's the fourth one. If I lose any or all things this world can offer, good or bad, I will not lose my joy or my treasure or my life because Christ is all. If I lose any or all things this world can offer, good or bad, I will not lose my joy or my treasure or my life, because Christ is all. There is is pain involved in this one. And I invite you to reflect on all of these ideas. What is God bringing up What is he revealing to you? How might the Holy Spirit be showing you what you need to repent of in these categories? What you actually treasure? What you really have put your hope in? Because Paul is saying that he not only considers his activities of pre Christian days as garbage, he's also saying that he considers all of his accomplishments and achievements in ministry as rubbish. Worthy of flushing down the toilet in comparison to knowing Christ. The things that once controlled him, the things that once drove his life, no longer have power over him. And that's the invitation for you and me. The things that once controlled me, the things that once drove my life, no longer have power over me or you. What a different kind of people in the world. It's a countercultural way to think about our time on earth that this is not all there is. And why should we do this? Is, there, is it worth it to think about the loss of all things? Paul says yes. And not only is a yes, a, a resounding yes, a surpassing yes. And Paul does something here that is so brilliant. He mirrors his his language about his own experience to the language he used in chapter 2, describing what Jesus had done. Listen to these words from chapter 2. Christ emptied himself to be found in the likeness of people. Christ humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death so that... Christ could be exalted in his resurrection from the dead. And now listen to how Paul reiterates that in chapter 3. Paul empties himself in order to gain Christ and be found in Christ. Paul places his faith not in the law or in works, but in the work of Christ, so that he might know him, share in his sufferings, and be like him in death. Because of Christ, we too might attain the resurrection from the dead. Suffer the loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ is better than knowing comfort. It's it's better than wealth. It's better than success. It's better than anything you can attain. It's better than, than even our health. Knowing Christ is better than our rightness or religiosity. Think of it this way. If I came to you this week and I said, I'm here to I'm here to take everything you've achieved. I'm here to take all of your, all the things you love. I'm going to take those away. Your car, your house, your money, your shoes, whatever, whatever it is. I'm going to take all that away. How would you feel? Are you feeling a sense of panic about that? What would you do without those things? But what if I showed up and I said this? What if I showed up this week and I said, Hey, this week I'm going to take all your trash. This week I'm going to take all your rubbish. I'm going to take all your filth. I'm going to take it all so that you can be free. How does that make you feel? For me, it's relief. This is what Christ came to do for us. Because of his sacrifice on the cross, he takes all of our garbage. And what does he do? He gives us himself in return. He's inviting us to leave our garbage at the foot of the cross. The path to freedom. To transforming joy, hope, and love. Which is what God wants for our lives. Always passes through crucifixion. You are invited. To imitate Christ in his death, to empty yourself as Christ did, to move all things to the lost column, to consider them as rubbish, is the first step in experiencing the surpassing greatness of Jesus. And what comes after? What comes after that? Knowing Christ, gaining Christ, being found in Christ, knowing the power of Christ's resurrection. Jesus emptied himself so that we could be full. To be like Christ is to empty ourselves for his name, by faith, for his glory, so that in the present we can press on. We can endure until the last day when we can share in his glory forever without pain, without tears, without racism, but with joy and laughter and freedom. And we can live in the present assured that nothing, nothing compares to what Jesus has accomplished for us. Christ's resume has become our resume. In that alone, through faith, we can boast. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that this is true. That you have given us an opportunity through your word to to look at our lives and to see the things that we hold on to that are empty. That leave us wanting, that don't fulfill the longing that we desire. Because that longing is in you. Father, I pray that, that this week... We are all able to think about these things in a new way, that you would bring up in us these things that we need to bring before you, that we need to nail to the cross that you've said you'll take for us, and that we would experience freedom in that. In fact, maybe for some of us who are listening right now, this is the first time that, that we've begun to even think that this is possibly true. God, I pray for your spirit to work. And that we would begin to believe that this is true and that this is great beyond everything else. Amen.